is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast, picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanika. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor podcast. It's a podcast where I speak to investors about their personal journeys and why they pursued an investment career. We'll discuss how they approach the management of their money and their investments, and we also talk about their best and worst investments ever. The idea is to find those golden nuggets of wisdom from their perspectives and experiences to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Jimmy Moyaha. He's a smart young guy who's making his mark in the investment industry. After he studied accounting at WITS, he had a short stint at the Shiva coal mine in Dalmas as an operational manager. That was back in 2016 and quickly jumped to IG Markets as a derivatives trader before he moved to Axie as a markets consultant. In December 2020, he founded the Lotus Academy and it offers a range of online training services for young people to start trading financial instruments. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining me today. Let's start with your mining adventure at Shiva Coal. Wasn't that a, a Gupta company? Um, it was at some stage. Uh, at the time I worked there, it was as well. It was an interesting uh, operation. So I, fresh out of varsity, came into an industry that I knew nothing about, which has pretty much been an ongoing theme, um, as you'll find out. But yeah, it was... Understanding a coal mine, understanding how the mine operates, understanding targets, understanding deliverables. Into my first real interaction with ESCOM before all of the things I now wonderfully know about the <laughs> state power utility. Um, yeah, so ev- everything from blasting to crushing coal to loading up trucks to making sure you hit the tonnage to get to ESCOM, all of that was quite an interesting experience and I think it was an invaluable experience because it, it, it showed me a lot about the mining side of things at a very surface level from an open cost side of things. So I haven't mm. seen an underground mine, mining operation but it, it was an interesting time in my life. Let's talk about investments uh, but first give us a bit of background about yourself. Uh, where did you grow up and when did you realize you would like a career in the investment world? <laughs> I don't know if it's if it was a voluntary choice. Um, so I spent most of my uh, schooling and my younger life in Pretoria. Um, my family's originally from Polokwane in Limpopo. But I, yeah, I spent a lot of my time in Pretoria and then time for university came about and I sort of came to Witz in Johannesburg. Never really left Johannesburg after that. Uh, and the the journey into investments was sort of almost entirely accidental. I had come off the mine. I'd applied for a new role with a recruiting agency in Johannesburg. And I was certain I I was qualified for this because I had my accounting degree. And I thought this is obviously going to be for me. And the lady that was screening me for the process actually said, look, this isn't going to work for you. But if you are looking at something else, might I recommend you for another interview, an entirely different interview, entirely different company, unrelated to what you've applied for? And I just said, okay, cool. I, I don't really know what that means, but let's give it a shot. And so thus I was introduced to IG Markets in South Africa. Now, fortunately for me, I landed up at one of the best derivative firms in the world. Um, they're the largest there. And so my 
introduction to the investment side of things above and beyond the accounting background that I'd had up to that point was from that perspective. Completely accidental, didn't know what a CFD was at the time, (laughs) didn't understand how CFDs worked, and suddenly I'm going for this interview. And somehow managed to land the job, somehow managed to start up there. And That's a job as a derivatives trader. No, so it started out as a, uh, you, you start out as trading support. So you support um, retail investors, you help them with their accounts. with um, In the call center. Yes, 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 effectively in the call center and managing all of that and that sort of thing. And so, because, so IG doesn't trade on behalf of their clients, uh, but they do have positions where a client will give you a trading instruction, you'll have validated that it is the right client and that sort of thing. And that comes later in the process. So you start out as a trainee, you start out learning about the the derivative space, what a CFD is, how the clients work, how IG makes its money, all of those sorts of things. And then eventually you go and you write uh, what they have as a, almost a trader's exam, an internal trader's exam, that then governs whether or not you're able to trade on clients' accounts and that sort of thing. Execution only. So you're not giving any advice to clients but you now understand things like risk exposure and what a lot size is and what notional exposure is versus what margin is and those sorts of things, you know. So you, you grow into that, that side of it. And how, I think, how steep was that learning curve? Oh, you've got, you've got eight or nine months to prepare for this test of theirs and then you have to pass the test and once you've passed the test as well, you have to look at doing your... RE5s as well at the same time. So this is from an inter- from a company point of view and that sort of thing. So IG differs very much from your average retail broker, which I then found out having left IG. So your your typical retail brokers, the the likes of your Hot Forexes, your XMs, and all of those guys are mainly MT5, MT4 type of brokerage setups that give clients the platform and the facilities to trade and that sort of thing. But once you work on the internal side of it, you start to realize that this this trading exam that IG does sets you apart from other retail brokers in that you now have to, you have a level of responsibility towards the client's account. You have to act. So when a client gives you an instruction to execute on their on their account, you start to almost be somewhat of a trading desk for very mm. loose terms. Um, obviously, trading desks in South Africa are a lot more advanced at banks and that sort of thing. But you get your first taste of understanding what that side of it means. Now, that's a whole different career path to just servicing clients and just taking in deposits and, you know. Is it a difficult job? It's not easy. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a very knowledge intensive job. So you, you can't, there's no room for error. And this is because you're dealing with clients' money, which is the same as a wealth manager, a fund manager, those sorts of things. You're accountable to a client for something. Now, you're not as accountable as a wealth manager who takes the decision on behalf of the client or a portfolio manager who manages the funds on behalf of a client. At that point, you're just executing an instruction given to you by a client and ensuring that you execute it properly, right? So Mm -hmm. from there, I sort of did uh, quite a bit of that. I went into servicing of those clients and, and you start to deal with a different type of clients. You know? let's, let's move along. Mm. You uh, went to Axie mm-hmm. and as a consultant and then you started your own business, <laughs> uh, which is an educational platform, the Lotus Academy. Tell us about Lotus Academy and what you do. So... Lotus wasn't actually the first business, and I think this is probably where my view for the markets is, is uh, governed from, is I, f- I view things from a lens of opportunity, right? Um, my first business was 
way back in sort of primary school, high school, somewhere around those cake sales. And uh, I then started a little sweet shop out of a duffel bag because a friend of mine had done it and I thought I needed the money. Long story short, I ended up having run-ins with my high school principal saying that the tuck shop is complaining that I'm outselling them and all <laughs> sorts of unnecessary things. But fast forward to Lotus Academy. Lotus Academy came from a need that I identified from this lens of opportunity that I've approached life with in that I worked in the derivative space. I, I consulted for derivative brokers. I consulted for international guys. I consulted at some point. I even consulted for the regulator on the understanding derivative brokerages, right? So uh, all of this... Then, the FSCA? Yes, the FSCA. So th and they didn't understand <laughs> it at that stage. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a very interesting space. It's a very interesting dynamic. And so... Um, it's not a conventional way to come into investments and financial markets, but it is it is a certain element that people do use in this day and age, you know. So when I got to that point, I mean, I I'd dealt with all of the ups and downs of learning about the space. And then you come into a space where your retail consumer has been on the receiving end of Cashflow Novo, Sandy Leshezi, a whole host of other characters that are less than savory and now there's a huge trust element that's broken down in that space and so that's that's kind of where lotus came from was to say before you can help individuals in the retail space people need to understand that they need to be educated they need to understand what it is that they're doing before and this was in an effort to avoid repeating the cycles where people were lied to and told put your money with us we'll do this we'll do that you know what i mean so the the academy itself stemmed from a need to ensure that South Africans, young South Africans, young black South Africans that haven't had the opportunities that other individuals might have had, where this is also not race dependent as well, but I mean, at the same time, not everybody has the opportunity to go to varsity. Not everybody has the opportunity to study investments and investment management. Those That, that sort of degree at WITS costs you about 100,000 Rand a year, you know, so understanding that you want to participate in financial markets, but not everybody has the opportunities that I'd had. And so for me, that's where Lotus came from. That was giving back in that respect. So somebody would knock on your door and say, listen, train me to become a, a derivatives trader. And then you train that person. Is that the idea? So before we got to that, when we built the academy, I then looked at it and said, something needs to happen that needs to differentiate what we do from anyone else that's out there. I mean, at, at this point, um, what was it, 2021, 2022-ish, everybody, a couple of years ago, I mean, everybody's got um, trading signals. All of these brokers are saying copy trade platforms and th those sorts of things. And, and, and for an individual who's never seen this in their life, this can be overwhelming. You don't know who to trust. You don't know which sources are legitimate and those sorts of things. So the first thing I did with Lotus was I legitimized the business. I went and got study material that was accredited. We're accredited for a national diploma in financial markets with Bank CETA. And for me, that was an important thing to say. The quality of the information that is going to be shared is from a responsible point of view. When I built the academy, it was very intentional to not be an introducing broker or an introducing partner like the, the likes of what people see in the industry because I didn't want the academy to be seen as oh, I'm just introducing you to another platform so that the platform can take your money. Because you read the statistics about CFD brokerages and the reality is they they have to put out those stats about 70 or 80% of people losing their money and that sort of thing, you know? So mm. 
my thing from an educational standpoint was I'm not educating you for my own benefit in terms of getting some kickback from a brokerage or, or whatever it is, um, the, the referral fees or those sorts of things. The education stemmed from a very real need in this country to say, if you can educate 5 to 10 to 20 people a year to the point where they are able to understand and be self-sufficient in financial markets, then that's 5 to 10 people that you've solved unemployment for. That's, that, that's a bigger problem than just getting a, a kickback or, or an affiliate uh, referral fee from a particular source. So following doing this course, you are confident that that individual can go out and hold its own with derivatives trading and build a career in that area? Well, the course isn't the only thing. So um, the, the, the whole thing was we built the academy as an online platform, right? We built it digitally because it's easier for people to access and that sort of thing. All the material is online. But the whole aim was the course was supposed to be built into a school. So my, my, my ultimate vision was to build a school where in the first year you do these courses, you do all this material and that sort of thing. In the second year, we take you through the trading in a, in a non-live environment. We, we take you through a structured program and that sort of thing. By year three, then yes, you should be a self-sufficient proprietary trader where you can go get prop funds, manage it all yourself and that sort of thing. So it's still a work in progress to, to get it to that point. And of course, um, a lot of the, the hindrances around that stem from funding and, and and the ability to scale the business, you know. So what I've done at this point is I've built something that an individual who's never seen a financial market or financial markets environment can come in and understand financial markets more than understand derivatives trading. So understand things like central bank decisions, understand things like why it is that the U.S. interest rates affect the South African rand more than the South African interest rates affect them um, at, at a macroeconomic level, you know. so Applied economics. Applied economics in real world terms, you know. And that was also from partly the things that I sort of ended up doing. So along this journey of consulting and building these brokerages and that sort of thing, I stepped into the wonderful realm of media. <laughs> and that was that started out, again, accidentally. Uh, you'll notice, Rake, a lot of what I do is purely accidental at some point. <laughs> but I started out with one radio station just doing commentary on what I saw in the markets on one particular day. And fast forward, I think, four or five years later, I'm across most of the national platforms in the country, whether it's TV or radio, I do shows that I never thought I'd be doing. I mean, yeah, you also present from time to time the <laughs> SAFA market update. And uh, if you haven't listened to it, please tune in. Tell us about your investment journey. For example, when did you make your very first investment? I would assume it's a derivative. Where did it start? Mm. Yeah, so I think my investment journey was a bit different um, to the, the, the conventional I bought a share the first time because I think I, I came into it from a bit of a, like I said, the derivative side of it was is a very different angle to approach long-only equities and mm. easy equities type of portfolio and that sort of thing. And so if I remember correctly, the first thing was uh, a trade on gold. Um, a CFD trade on gold was probably the first one. Uh, first share investment was. Did you make money on that trade? It wasn't much, but I think I did. Oh, well. um, and and for me, it was one of those things where you'd worked in the environment for so long, you'd understood what you needed to do from a stop loss and a take profit type of thing, and you know, and you're like, okay, cool, let's let's try it. And it's, it's very different. Uh, one just looking at the, the the numbers and making that decision from from that point to trying it on what we know as demo accounts, to trying it with your own money, 
right? So, because now with your own money, there's there's a, a different element it's of emotion. It's a big involved, difference, right? a massive difference, actually. <laughs> Completely different. So, um, yeah, I think that was the first trade. But from from an investment standpoint, I think a lot of what I do at the moment has. Um, kept me in the investment space beyond what I imagined it would, and, and I'm privileged in that respect. In that, all of all of the things that I do, from a media point of view, from uh, an investment point of view, all of the information that I consume on a daily basis is it's just constantly being being brought to the fold. How critical is it for you to do that to be able to trade successfully? Oh, it's absolutely critical. It's the same. It's the same thing as doing research. You, 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 you can't make an informed decision about something if you don't know. It's not an informed decision if there's no information behind it. You know what I mean? So I think for me, my, my information comes through a little differently because of what I do. Mm. Um, whereas for, for some, you have to then sit and go and read books and read these sorts of trading courses mm. and, 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 and educate yourself in that respect. You know? And I think from, from a retail investment point of view, particularly if you're looking at uh, building things like a share portfolio, um, a lot of it comes through over time. I mean, the opposite of that approach would be technical analysis. You look at funny-looking graphs. Mm-hmm. I've seen derivative traders, and, and you, you, know, you and try and identify the head and shoulders and, mm-hmm. and base decisions on that, as opposed to what is happening in the market. What news um, mm-hmm. is in the market that may affect mm-hmm. and, and move markets? That's the, and you know what? That's an ongoing debate. There are a lot of people out there that still say price action will always rule in this and this and this, and. For me, what I've realized is you have to marry both, right? And I say you have to marry both because I've lived through uh, an environment where Donald J. Trump was the president of the United States and his tweets would move markets. You know, and, and that's not something that price action is is going to teach you. That's that's not a mm. that's not a technical analysis point of view. That is a fundamental thing where a market shock is induced by uh, an unforeseen event, and typically those unforeseen events are fundamental events. Take COVID-19, for example. Price action would have dictated that oil prices would have bounced at a certain mm. point. Oil prices went to negative because it was a shock that was beyond price action. Mm. So technicals are one thing. You you can't not look at technicals, but you can't say you're going to ignore fundamentals entirely because you don't live in that kind of world. You don't live in a world where macro information is not important, where interest rate decisions are not important you know so and i think that's that's something investors need to look at whether you're looking at shares it doesn't matter what instrument you're looking at you need to understand that the information you consume governs the type of decision that you make so the more information you consume the more um informed of a decision you're going to make but at the same time you need to be careful how to, you need to clearly know how to distill that information right so that that's, that's another that's, actually that's a the, hard lesson. that's the skill right so you can consume as much information as possible but if you're not aware of what you need to distill what you need to put aside what you need to focus on what governs your decision that decision making process becomes that much harder because then you're bombarded by different things because all of the information that's available to people in this day and age is freely available in part, but it's also contradictory. Ray can have a bullish view on Sassol. I can have a bearish view on Sassol and say Sassol's not going higher than this. And if, you, if you're consuming 10, 12 different analysts and they're all saying 12 different things, you're not going to make a decision at the end of the day. You need to distill the noise Absolutely. from the that's signals. That's the hard yeah. lesson. That's, that's, that's one of the hardest lessons with investments as well is when you distill, you need to understand why you're distilling. So your investment journey is yours. 
Mm. It's unique to you. It's unique to whatever goals that you've set out for yourself. Some people mm. have higher risk appetites naturally. Some people look at a chart and the moment something moves even a fraction mm. against them, they freak out. And, you know, so, so people are all wired differently. And mm. that wiring affects your investment decisions, right? And your investment decisions are then further affected by your circumstances. If you're investing from a point where you can afford to lose 100,000 rand on Steinoff because it's a punt, meh, if it goes up, it goes up. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's not the same as investing from a point of view of wanting to build a long-term generational portfolio that you're going to leave to your grandkids mm. or your great-grandkids. You know, So investment decisions are very personal to people. Let's go back to your first CFD gold investment. Uh, <laughs> what, what happened afterwards? When, when did you realize, listen, I'm pretty good at this and, uh, and it's actually lucrative? I don't know if, if, if I'm at that point where I can say I'm pretty good at it. Uh, I think it's, it's a situation where I have spent so much time in the financial markets that I know what I'm bad at. Right. <laughs> and that's that's the difference maker. It's not it's not being amazing at something. It's learning what not to do, learning the hard lessons and, and saying, what do I not want to repeat? How do I want to approach things and that sort of thing? And that fine tunes your your view and your perception on your investment strategy on, on what the decisions you make. So what are you bad at? Uh, a lot of things, apparently. <laughs> like most people. I mean, the thing with investments is it's a constant learning curve. You asked earlier in the interview um, how steep the learning curve was from when I started to where. And the, the learning curve, is it's, it's one of those things where it's a, it's a mountain range. So you, it's steep, you plateau a bit, you might dip a bit, and then it's steep again. And it, it's constantly understanding that you're ne- if, if you stay idle you're not doing yourself any favors in that respect. So, and, and I think another benefit for me is with all of the, the hosting of the Money Web Show, the hosting of um, platforms like Power FM and, and other shows as well, and engaging with industry peers. I mean, uh, growing up and, and looking at things on TV and listening to the radio, I mean, you used to hear names like um, Stephen Krutis, uh Simon Brown, Fifi Peters, um, Bruce Whitfield, you know, David Shapiro, though, and... Now I'm in a situation where I can engage and interact with those individuals uh, within the industry. And I I think that's – I consider myself extremely privileged from that point of view. But what it showed me is that information in investments is everything, much like any other decision-making diagram you go through, whether it's a business or an investment portfolio, information – is absolutely critical in all of them. What advice would you have for a young person coming out of varsity? They've maybe have done one or two trades, one <laughs> being really positive and, you know, obviously that instills confidence. So <laughs> uh, but, but how would you advise that person to uh, approach the markets if they want to build a portfolio for generational wealth? Manage your expectations. You're not going to win everything. You're not even, you might not even own half the things that you want to do in this space. Manage your own expectations, remove your own personal emotions and feelings and thoughts because those can be a catalyst to a very downward spiral or a catalyst to, I mean, you, you, you is, can that, get, is that not aiming low to avoid disappointment? Well, this, this is the thing, right? If, if you 
if you are prepared for disappointment, when disappointment eventually arrives, and it will in the financial markets, whether it's self-induced or market-induced, disappointment is there. It's a reality. If you are prepared for it, it doesn't affect you as much. So it's it's the same reason if you look at a a CFD, the the, the reason people have stop losses in place. You're preparing for the event that the market moves against you, right? And it's not aiming low. It's just being realistic and managing expectations. Because if you come into the market saying, I'm going to be the one person that never makes a single losing trade in my entire life, you're either not going to take opportunities because you're afraid of ruining your record or you're going to be horribly disappointed. You're never going to come into the markets and invest again and you're never going to be able to get to the point that you want to get to. A bad trade does not equal a bad trader. That's it. Just manage your expectations and understand that you are in an environment that you have no control over. This is this is not like when you go into a supermarket and you buy cereal, you have the luxury of deciding which cereal you want. Um, same way you have the luxury of deciding which investments you want, I suppose, but it, it, the market is not going to move just because you bought a share in it. <laughs> You've set your goals. Don't be overly arrogant, maybe, in your strategy. And what then? When, when do you start to say, listen, I can do this myself and maybe I can outperform the professional guys. I don't need to go and see a financial advisor and invest through an Alan Gray balance fund, for example, <laughs> uh, how should you approach that uh, option you will have sometime in your life? I think that's a very personal thing as well. M- much as the, the trading journey and the investment journey is personal, some people do this and you realize along the way that it's not for you. And be okay with that, right? Be okay with understanding that this is not for everyone. You're not going to be the next David Shapiro. You're not going to be the next Pietri Riedling Ace. Not everybody's cut out to weather the storms that come with this. Um, something that Pietri said in an interview with you at, at some point was... That's Pietri Riedling. Yes, yes. yes. Mm. It takes a lot of grit to sit in this space, right? And, and more than grit, I think it's understanding and accepting that if this is not for you, that it, it's not a poor reflection on you as a person. It just simply means that this sort of investment or this mm. this sort of environment and this uh, the stress that comes with it is not for you and that's okay that's and that's probably why companies like Alan Gray and Coronation and that still exist because it, some individuals want to place their money in the capable hands of a third party individual so they don't have to worry about these sorts of things and leave all of the difficult decision making to that mm. person because that's not how they are wired so at some point, people invest in that manner, and this comes through in your investment strategies. Some people trade to outperform the market and that sort of thing. I mean, t- to your question about the outperformance of the market, I I didn't plan on outperforming the market when I came into this space. I found an article about myself, I think it was a couple of months ago, written by the Daily Investor that said that I'd outperformed the JSE Top 40 by a certain percentage, and I was ranked amongst the top 10 strategists or whatever in the country at the time. I think it was last year, in November. So I didn't plan on that happening. I didn't even Did you know it? No, I I stumbled upon the article (laughs) accidentally. And the article was written um, by the Daily Investor. I think uh, the gentleman's name is Jacques, uh, the, the, the columnist who wrote the article. And it was just a ranking of the performances throughout the year, and you've got big names on there. You've got FNB on there. You've got um, 
Herenia Capital mm-hmm. on there. You've got, you've got big hedge funds and institutional investors on uh, that list, and then you've got just like a random individual in the middle of the list somewhere. So it's I, I don't think you you plan on these sorts of things, but I think the conscious decision making that goes through into your investment process will ultimately result in your investment decisions turning out better over time and averaging out mm-hmm. better over time. You're not going to get them all right. But it's also not a either or. You can have uh, your own portfolio as well as a professionally managed mm-hmm. portfolio, maybe for pension. And uh, I like to be active in the market because mm. it keeps my attention. If mm. you have skin in the game, your perspectives of investment change mm. significantly. Time is not on our side. Now the the question where I hear the giggle and uh, what has been your worst investment ever? <laughs> worst investment ever? Hmm. Have it been there have bad been. investments? No, they have been. They have been bad <laughs> investments. I gave out um, a U.S. company, MicroStrategy. MicroStrategy, heavily weighted in Bitcoin, like Tesla, that sort of thing. Mm. I really liked what MicroStrategy was doing. And I, I gave it out, I think, last year or sometime or whatever. Um, and, and unfortunately for me, a, a lot of the stocks that I've given out, I've given out on public platforms. So you can go back and actually see the day I gave it out and that sort of thing. So... Very accountable for those things. Um, And I gave out MicroStrategy and it just simply hasn't done well. The price of Bitcoin coming down, all of that hadn't done well. At the time I gave it out, I thought this company surely has the right idea from what they're doing at a business level and that sort of thing. So I'd done a bit of my homework around that. And I think it's one of the the, the notable ones that I can think of off the top of my head. There are a few, um, but I mean, another one, Steinoff. But my Steinoff one was something I'm comfortable with. Steinoff came down to like two, three rand or whatever. And I was like, look, if it goes down to zero, it goes down to zero. It's a punt at this point. It's not an investment decision. And I was like, okay, cool. And now it's at 30 cents. And I'm like, was this really worth the punt? (laughs) Well, you need to know what you get into um, and and don't ruin your whole portfolio uh, on one trade. Absolutely. Um, Your best investment ever. A completely... Accidental investment called Occidental Petroleum. I gave it out last year. There was the, the the article that I mentioned to you. There was a separate article about top stock picks, and that was one of the top stock picks of last year as well. Gave out Occidental Petroleum before Warren Buffett got into it, I think, and now he holds four percent of it. And I, it it looks like a brilliant stock. But at the time I gave it out, I had no idea it was going to perform this way. It did. A, I think it did about one hundred and eight to one hundred and ten percent last year. Um, and again, this was shortly after having given out something like MicroStrategy and looking at the likes of CrowdStrike and that sort of thing. So my investment decisions or the investment, the stock picks that I've given out in the public space and the ones that I've taken privately as well have been a function of that lens of opportunity that I mentioned in the, at the start of our chat is to say it's – uh, some of the decisions are not necessarily for the portfolio on a long-term basis. Some just look really good at this, at certain price levels. I mean, I got a phone call from a family member around Sassol at 20 Rand when the oil price crash happened. I said load up as much as humanly possible because even if it goes back up to 100 Rand, you've made 500% mm. of your return. But the reality was at that time was the Saudis were never going to let the oil price stay at zero. The reality is the world is still 80% governed by fossil fuels. So that was a that was the most logical decision at that point. At 20 rand on Sassol, mm. before Lake Charles came online officially, that was the best thing people could have done for themselves. 
And those that listened, that got out of Sasol eventually at, at 200 or 300 rand were saying, I mean, this, from 20 rand, that's... That's an know? unbelievable opportunity. I think Kumbo had the, the same implosion and then one of the biggest bounces we've ever seen on the JSC. But Jimmy, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. And uh, this has been very, very inspiring. And I hope many young people follow in your footsteps. Thank you, Rick. Thank you very much for the opportunity. That was Jimmy Moyaha. He's currently the owner of the Lotus Academy. And he has made his mark in the derivatives industry in South Africa. Show me the money. That was the Money Web, the A Better Investor podcast with Ray Funicap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the Money Web podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. Money Web, your trusted source for business and investment insights.